Our basic principle when we started the company was, was pretty simple, is let's make sure that whatever we have on our menus is food that, that the patient's gonna desire and that they're gonna eat and it's gonna be nutritionally sound. So that does help in that curing process. And so it was always a challenge for us to try to beat that, that, that negative connotation with healthcare food service. And we always felt that if we were feeding a family member, that if they had a good experience, they felt better about how we were taking care of their loved one in the bedside. Hello everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Let's Talk Solutions, Candid Conversations with Healthcare Leaders. I'm Amy Fritzer, Director of Business Development for HHS. And I'm Becca Leaf, also Director of Business Development for HHS. This week, we are actually discussing the idea of malnutrition within the healthcare setting. We're gonna talk about how it can improve your quality of care for your patients, as well as how it can increase your reimbursement rates. And we're joined today by Liz Horton, who's a registered dietitian and the corporate dietitian for HHS, as well as Keith O'Neill, who is also a registered dietitian and the founder of the Culinary and Nutrition Services Program here at HHS. So welcome, Liz and Keith. We appreciate you being here. Thank you for joining us. And let's go ahead and get started. Hey, Liz and Keith, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Oh, thanks, Becca. We really appreciate it and uh, appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Yes, glad to be here. Liz, so you've been with HHS about four years and as a clinical dietitian, a registered dietitian, and you know your background as a consultant, how did you get into that position or how did you grow into that? <laughs> well, my very first position when I graduated as a registered dietitian 38 years ago, was in a very small hospital and I was the RD slash kitchen manager. And I had the role of not only overseeing all the clinical aspects of patient care, but also in the kitchen, writing menus, checking tray lines, making, assuring that all of the patients were being fed appropriately. And that is when I think I really fell in love with the acute care setting the high pace, the energy needed to um, keep up with the daily aspects of feeding patients in the hospital, and also just the challenge of it all. And I think that's what started off my career in a great step because I had a lot of good experience in seeing exactly how everything fit together in a hospital setting on the nutritional care of the patients. And so now you are the one managing all of the registered dietitians at HHS, yes. correct? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so I started out managing one dietitian and now I manage over a hundred. So, wow. so just throughout my career, I just think I've had a lot of different jobs and opportunities that have given me a lot of different experience throughout the years, which has been very valuable in growing into this position. Gotcha. And so Keith, you founded the culinary program at HHS a little over a decade ago, or a little under a decade ago. Uh, yeah, it was, it was over 10, July uh, 2010. It was? Okay. How did that opportunity come about for you? Well, it's, it was really uh, it was a great opportunity. I, I was in the process that uh, had uh, got tied up with the, uh, the downturn of the real estate crash in 07, 08, 09, 10, and I had retired and put my uh, my gold into the market, real estate market, and it didn't work out too well. So I had to kind of get back to work in 2009. And I had gone back to work for one of the large companies that I had sold my business to in 97. 
And I quickly realized that I didn't uh, want to stay working with that company. And, and if I was going to continue on that road, I was probably going to go back and, and start my own business again. So I was in the process of um, getting funding and support from five other individuals to fund uh, a launch of, of uh, my own company again. And at that time, I got a call from a representative, Tony Cornerman, who was working for HHS, and they were looking for somebody to to partner with to launch the culinary division of HHS. At that time, there was a change in the dynamics of the RFPs and the way the market was was changing. Uh, a number of the the business models were including a uh, a request for both for a company that serviced not only environmental services, housekeeping, but also plant operations and food service and multiple disciplines with the same vendor. Right. And HHS was a singular vendor for 35 years, and they were looking to branch out and expand, at least with a food service offering. And Jim Spry had the foresight to say, hey, we need to start looking to expand our our um, offerings, our core business model in healthcare and tried to expand and, and develop a, a culinary division. And he was always always interested in somebody that had a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit that had already started a company. And my resume included uh, selling a company to a large um, international company. And he enjoyed that uh, benefit. He thought that that brought value to, to starting and launching a new division with HHS. And so we met and, and, um, I had a great meeting, I met with four of the owners of, of HHS at that time, and within about 15, 20 minutes, Jim decided that he, he thought we ought to move forward and try to develop a partnership. And so he and I then shook hands, and, and uh, the rest is history. You had mentioned earlier about the diversification in terms of having to add, because at the time, the trend was kind of changing in healthcare, where if facilities were going out to RFP, they were looking at multiple disciplines or multiple services. Why do you think that was? That they Was it a consolidation effort? Or what, what do you think the main reason for that was? Yeah, I think there, there was probably a couple main reasons. I think economics was driving it. I think that uh, administrators were thinking if they, they put both, at least two service lines in a bucket, they might get some synergies and cost savings associated with it. But I think they were also looking at that time to try to consolidate the uh, just the motivation and the dynamics of, of how you manage a team. Um, the, if you had different team members represented by different vendors, you had different philosophies of management. And so then you had a separation of those, those core values. And so, you know, for instance, right now, patient satisfaction is critical. And it's, it's so, it goes hand in glove for our, for our food service worker to work side by side with the same team member on the housekeeping environmental services side because we can cover each other's backside and we can share mm -hmm. responsibilities and we know that we've got a common goal of that patient satisfaction issue and that, that guest service. And so it really does make a lot of sense to have the same vendor and have the same yeah. philosophy of managing those team members. Yeah. yeah. And I think that was driving it. And I think the economics was driving it. it you know, and, and I'll tell you, in the beginning for us, and it was a little bit of a different uh, model, but, you know, it was tough to, to launch the division because we didn't have a lot of history. And a lot of the accounts that we had with HHS were large facilities, and they were 
nervous about taking on a, a new division that didn't have a lot of experience with HHS and food. Um, so we had to start with very small facilities. And at that time, as you know, our first account was with a, was a 30-bed hospice. And the way we were able to launch it was that we went in with one director managing both service lines. And it was very competitive because they didn't need to have a separate housekeeping director and a separate food service director. And it was pretty unique. Yeah, quite a shift. Right. And we ended up over the next couple, three years, having a dozen or so of those smaller hospitals where it really made a lot of sense to have one director managing both service lines. Um, mm -hmm. And what we would do is typically we would put a, a food service person because there was more moving parts on the food side. And then we'd have like a floor tech, a lead H, a housekeeping person and, and put all the processes in place on the housekeeping side. And it was really successful. And we still have a number of those that we started mm -hmm. with. Matter of fact, we still have the, the Methodist Hospice account today that we started 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So fast forward 11 years, you know, you built this, this incredible program and Liz is helping manage it from the clinical nutrition piece of, of the house. So Liz, question for you. We, I would love to share kind of the idea behind malnutrition and, and the benefit that can come to hospitals when they are accurately uh, diagnosing patients within their facility with malnutrition. So just to start, can you explain, Liz, what malnutrition is? Um, certainly. Malnutrition is really a broad term that is used to describe any imbalance of your daily intake of macronutrients. And so malnutrition is usually referenced to an inadequate intake of proteins, calories, and fats in the diet. So that's kind of where it it's referenced from. And I think in the healthcare setting, malnutrition has received a lot more recognition as a medical diagnosis. And that's in the past, it wasn't always recognized or it was often overlooked as an actual diagnosis of a patient coming into the hospital. And I think with when looking at the diagnosis of malnutrition, we look at a lot of different levels of severity and the related causes that impact that quality of care for the patient if it's not treated or when it is treated. And I think that's where things have really moved with the, with the definition of malnutrition. And currently one of the most recognized diagnoses is severe protein calorie malnutrition in terms of, of a diagnosis in the hospital or healthcare settings. So what does that look like? You know, I'm a patient, I come in, you say that I'm malnourished. What symptoms am I likely experiencing? Oftentimes, a patient does not know they have malnutrition. It's oftentimes there's an underlying cause of what has created that malnutrition. So it could be poor PO intake. It could even be an underlying cause that they've just had malabsorption from having um, another unrelated diagnosis, such as a short bowel syndrome or other things like that. So oftentimes, we don't really refer to the patient as you're malnourished, we look at what the underlying cause was. You've had a poor peon intake because you have difficulty swallowing or because you have inadequate resources to provide adequate protein, or you have a medical diagnosis that requires a higher amount of protein intake, such as sepsis or, or a traumatic injury that has gone untreated and it could have resulted in a malnutrition diagnosis. 
So the patient comes in, the doctor is diagnosing you with some other condition, but alongside of that, the patient is also malnourished likely because of that condition they have. But it sounds like so commonly the malnourished piece of it isn't getting diagnosed. So if that is diagnosed correctly and the RD gets involved and is able to work with the client or the the patient, excuse me, what then are the benefits for the facility? for diagnosing that patient with malnourishment. So yes, you're absolutely right. Oftentimes, research has really shown that almost one in three patients come into the hospital with a diagnosis of malnutrition. Um, It's like 20 to 50% of the patients entering the hospital. And if we can capture this diagnosis, we always think of it as it's like a co-diagnosis to the diagnosis they're coming in for the hospital with. Right. And so if we can capture this additional diagnosis, then that... It has a real impact on the quality of care that the patients have once a treatment plan is set up and a focus plan for them in order to treat the malnutrition in addition to the admitting diagnosis of a, of a patient coming into the hospital setting. You were just talking about how malnutrition is often misdiagnosed or not diagnosed enough. And uh, so what exactly are the parameters of that? In, in a hospital or healthcare setting, there are two primary parameters that have been validated to be used to determine that this patient needs to be evaluated for malnutrition upon admission. Number one is a poor nutritional intake for two or more weeks prior to admission. And secondly, is a significant weight loss that has occurred of 10% or more of their body mass. So a lower BMI or, or even if they have a high BMI that they've had a significant weight change. And those are the two parameters that are initially captured at, in the nurse's admission screen. So at, at that point, the nurse, you know, sees one of those two things at the screening and says, hey, we need to engage the dietitian. Then what happens? From that nursing screen, the, a dietitian is triggered with those, with those um, questions that are asked at admission to evaluate that patient. Once the dietitian has completed a nutritional assessment, and a nutrition-focused exam to validate that criteria for a malnutrition diagnosis. And she, the dietitian also evaluates for the level of severity of the malnutrition or the causes of the malnutrition, documents those, and then refers it to the physician who also needs to document and diagnose the same level of severity and the same causes of the malnutrition. So an RD cannot diagnose malnutrition, the physician must diagnose it. So when that physician diagnosis is documented, then the hospital can go in and and code or bill for that comorbidity or that co-diagnosis that was determined through this process that, that we've just described. Gotcha. So what's the importance there of the dietitian? Because if the doctor is the one diagnosing it, it sounds like they're the ones missing it. So can you just kind of explain a little bit like the benefits of having the RD on staff and how that helps you get to that point of being able to get the reimbursement? Yes, that's a great question because the RD is really the pivotal role in this whole process because they're the ones who can determine whether or not the actual nutritional intake has been poor and what aspects of their nutritional intake as they, as the patient usually is a poor historian, the RD will come in and ask them, you know, what's your diet history been like? What have you been eating? And from there, they can determine what level of malnutrition or what macronutrients 
have been lacking in their diet to make that diagnosis. Dietitians also are trained to perform a physical nutritional exam, meaning they're focusing just at looking at muscle mass wasting. So if they can go in and determine there's muscle wasting in different areas on a patient, then they will be able to have that be a related cause of the malnutrition or the type of malnutrition they have as far as the severity level. So the more muscle mass they can, they can determine, the higher level of severity of malnutrition, which, which goes back into that reimbursement piece that if they have a higher level of malnutrition, obviously they're more at risk and they will have a higher reimbursement level for that diagnosis. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. The next thing, I guess, when you have that diagnosis and obviously you, you know, the team has determined that the patient is malnutritioned, hopefully the severity of it, how did then do you communicate that to the patient to get them to buy into a change, changing in their diet or adding more macronutrients or more protein or, or whatnot? Like how, how does that process work? Because I would imagine it's got kind of a negative connotation. <laughs> like if I, if I heard someone say that, I'd be like, oh, well, that, I don't understand. You know, how does that get communicated to the patient? Yes, definitely. Definitely a challenge when you're working in the hospital, especially when someone's sick and not feeling well and they've had a lot of bad news anyway. But dietitians are very well-trained and professionals to go in and to discuss these aspects of nutritional problems with the patient. And most of the times, most dietitians will not go in and say, you have a diagnosis of a severe malnutrition. <laughs> yeah. They will go in and they will address the cause that they determine. So they may say, hey, We've noticed you're not eating well. You really need to have more protein in your diet because of your, mm -hmm. you, you know, the disease state you're in, your healing. So we want to work with you to increase your protein in your diet. What are some of the ways we can do that and help to reinforce goals as far as that are related to their diet to help improve their nutritional status? And that's usually their focus. And it may not just be protein, it might be overall calories, adding a supplement. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, they may be discussing with them, we need to start a, you know, enteral feedings because you're not able to eat enough. And that might be the discussion they'll have with them. But malnutrition usually isn't always the focus. It's more of the cause of the malnutrition and how we can get to that root cause and, and implement a care plan for their nutrition, their dietary plan to improve that nutritional status not only while in the hospital, but when they go home to keep them from coming back into the hospital also. Right. Because that also, the return of a, and the rechecking in of a patient also impacts your reimbursement, right? Yes, it does. And that gets back to um, that reimbursement of that diagnosis. We want to be able to capture it quickly so right. we can start treatment quickly to improve the quality of care of the patient. And not only does the hospital get reimbursement for that diagnosis, but I think hospitals really look at also the impact it has. Readmissions. Yeah, right? the impact it has on readmissions and also mm -hmm. on lengths to stay, extended lengths to stay because mm -hmm. a patient is not getting better and they get fined or sometimes they their reimbursement is not given because of the readmission. So they're really capturing that level of quality of care we're giving to the patients in the hospital to prevent those readmissions, to prevent lengths of stay extended beyond what their diagnosis allows. Right. And if you're helping them make changes to their diet, it could prevent readmission for other things later down the road because food is obviously the foundation of, of our health too, that we still yes. often don't pay attention Definitely. to. Definitely. If, if we can improve their nutritional status, make an impact, 
on their lifestyle going home to prevent those readmissions, then we're overall improving the quality of care for that patient and also improving outcomes for the hospital. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and so, you know, Keith, at this point, we've talked about the importance of focusing on malnutrition from not only our quality of care, but also from a reimbursement standpoint for hospital and healthcare facilities. When you were building a culinary program, so for, for anyone out there that is starting a culinary program or it doesn't have malnutrition in their current culinary program, what advice do you have to them for implementing that within their culinary space? You know, again, as as I also uh, had my training as a registered dietitian, and so we knew that that was a basic premise for health and, and wellness and, and curing patients' disease states while they were hospitalized and certainly uh, continuing that at home. And so our our basic principle when we started the company was, it was pretty simple, is just make sure that whatever we have on our menus is food that that the patient's gonna desire and that they're gonna eat and it's gonna be nutritionally sound so that it does help in that curing process. And so one of the, the key aspects of our development was that we created a menu concept that was what we highlighted as our, our chef special. And that chef special menu was to do two things. One, it was gonna be a popular comfort food item that we uh, identified that if we did do 60 plus percent of the population select that item, we would change it out because we wanted something that was going to be a popular from a comfort food standpoint so that the patient would select it and that they would get that nutrition. And then we also had a alternate selection of five items so that we wanted to make sure that there was five different items in addition to the chef special that gave the, the patient a great selection option so that they did find something they liked. And then, of course, with the ambassador program that they could also select something if there was nothing on those five or six selections that they liked, that they would be given another option offered by the um, by, by the ambassador. The key, though, was to give the patient some type of, of wholesome nutrition that would you know satisfy them and also would help sustain their their health plan. And that was the goal. So how do you design the menus? Looking around, obviously patients come in with various issues, underlying conditions, they're healing from, you know, variety of things. So how, when you're designing, when you're starting the culinary program, how did you design menus? Obviously you being an RD and then having input from fellow RDs and stuff, designing menus specific to dietary restrictions while also maintaining that there's nutritional value especially if someone needed, you know, additional calories or more, pro how did you go about that? Well, we, we had a base menu that was our regular menu, but then we had the modified diets menus off of that, which was a dovetail from those. But we, you know, we had a basic uh, standard menu that met the nutritional guidelines and, and it, it had a certain amount of calories, specific amount of calories, fat, protein, and uh, carbohydrates. And there was a standard and we designed the menus around that. We would run those menus through a computer program that would identify if it met the standards for the amount of calories, fat, protein, and carbohydrates. And, you know, we had to balance it around. You would swap things around. If it was low on protein, for instance, we'd add something else to it. But it was pretty, it was, you know, after doing it for as many years as we had, we had a lot of samples of menus that we'd use over our lifetime. And we would just tweak it and, um, and, and make sure that we met those standard guidelines. And, and, you know, 
back in the old days, we used to have, have had to hand calculate that. But of course, now with the way <laughs> uh, technology is, it was pretty simple. Yeah. Oh, gosh, that would take forever to hand calculate. Oh, I did. Like. You know, Liz, you probably remember going back in the old days, calculating <laughs> that by hand. And oh, oh my yes. gosh. It, and, 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 you know, and I, I can tell you, I have had many battles with our clinical dietitians over the years because I was all about making sure we wanted to have the foods that people would eat. I mean, it's right. great to have foods out there that meet mm -hmm. all the clinical guidelines. But if it doesn't mix what, you know, if it doesn't something that people didn't eat, what, what good did it do? Yeah. So, it, you know, it uh, it was a challenge. And, and uh, I, I think the, the key, though, the real big break, I think, and Liz, you can add your two cents to that, though, is when we ended up having that chef special and, and using the term chef and then, you know, and, and certainly we had a chef driven model. That's most of our directors and all of our units had culinary trained professionals that it, it made a difference making sure that we had that culinary professional approach to providing and, and building the food model. Um, and, and, and using the term chef, it just kind of enhanced the expectation of the quality of the food and it helped. And, and then having those selections, alternate selections, it gave people good choices and it, it, it met our goals and it, it met their, their needs. What were you saying, Keith, about the 60% if 60% of people didn't? So let's say we had an item on there on the menu that was termed as our chef daily special. And let's mm -hmm. say it was a pot roast, a fresh made pot roast, and it didn't, people didn't select it. Or if it was turkey tetrazzini and, and only 20, 40, 25 or 30% of the, of the patient population selected it, we realized it was not a popular item. So we might swap that out and, and replace it with meatloaf, mashed potatoes, and and um, great glazed carrots. And over um, what time frame are we talking? Like twenty five percent of people over. Well, we'd look. You know, we 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 typically ran a, a, in our acute care facilities a seven day cycle menu and rotated it because okay. again you had the chef specials and we'd have a, a key chef special fourteen specials actually one for lunch seven days and one for dinner seven days. Mm -hmm. And then five alternates. And the alternates generally stayed the same. And they were simple, basic foods, turkey club, and cheeseburger, grilled cheese, yada, yada. And so, um, you know, we'd watch it. Two, we'd watch it two or three or four weeks. And if there was an item that was on the chef special that was not very popular, we'd swap it out and try something else. I mean, it, it, it was very simple because, again, as a smaller company, you know, with just a handful of accounts in the very beginning, it was easy to tweak and turn turn the battleship very quickly. And um, it, again, the focus was on patient satisfaction and, and making sure that we were, you know, providing the service that we said we were going to do. So, Keith, what was the most popular item that patients usually gravitated towards or that seemed to? You know, pick I, I will tell you, I think that there was a couple, you know, the, the uh, meatloaf was always a very popular item. <laughs> Um, the fried, fried catfish on Fridays was always a, a, a popular item. Um, we, we, our, our, our spaghetti and meatball or meat, meat sauce was always a, a you know, again, it goes back to the comfort foods yeah. and, mm -hmm. and, and things that people liked, um, you know, the chicken noodle soup, we always had a, a fresh made soup. And a lot of the keys to it too, was that we use fresh vegetables, fresh mashed potatoes, um, fresh vegetables. The meats were never frozen. They were always fresh. And, and uh, we, you know, we highlighted that on the menu. And so it made a big difference. Uh, fresh roasted turkey breast, 
um, was always a popular item with fresh mashed potatoes. Um, I, I don't, Liz, I'm sure we're still you know, <laughs> using some of those same items. We are. We still have one of the most popular is the turkey breast. And we've added a cornbread stuffing to it. Ooh, yeah. We've done some things to make the chef special, a little more heart healthy so that they can be used across and spread to other therapeutic diets so that they're not just getting a plain piece of chicken, but they're actually getting the oven. We call it now the breaded oven chicken because fried chicken was one of our favorites. And we've switched it to more of a heart healthy, more of a across the board. Everyone can have this entree and enjoy it. Um, we no longer serve fried catfish, but we do have a very beautiful <laughs> breaded Parmesan white fish that people love. So we've cho- we've gone through several different fish items. So we found one that everybody enjoyed and loved. It's a panko crusted Parmesan, very heart healthy across the board. And, and that's worked really well for our new menus now. So they've evolved from through the years to become really culinary delights for the patients in the hospitals now. You got to remember when we when we first launched the division, mm-hmm. our first account was in, uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, and Dothan, Alabama. Dothan, Alabama. And if you don't serve fried catfish on Friday, you don't keep the yeah. account. Exactly. <laughs> and we do have a few accounts that still want their fried fish. That the dietitians fight with them, but they get yeah. it. Well, in retail, in retail, it's a must. I promise you. Yeah, retail, um, it's a must. <laughs> Well, and I'm glad you said that, Keith, because that's what I was going to ask you next is, you know, most of these accounts have a retail side that, I mean, sometimes I guess you might have a patient eating from there if like a family member goes down and grabs them a snack and brings it back upstairs. But for the most part, it's staff from the hospital or visitors to the hospital eating in in the cafe. So how did you guys account for both the clinical side, the patients upstairs and the retail side? Were they the same? Did you have different items? So we always took a lot of pride in, in um, what we did for the retail area because we always felt that if we were feeding a family member in our cafeterias and restaurants, that if they had a good experience, they felt better about how we were taking care of their loved one in the bedside. And so, mm-hmm. they, and we always, you know, again, I, I go back like Liz of many years in this business, and it was always a challenge for us to try to beat that, that, that negative connotation with healthcare food service. And, and of course, it's changed over the years from when we started years ago. Um, a, a lot of it driven by the, the professionalism that we've incorporated with hiring chefs to, to manage our, our units. But uh, it, it, was a, it was a little bit of a challenge because, you, you know, probably Liz and, I, and you can again comment on it, but I bet more than 50 or 60 percent of our, our patients now are on modified diets. And so in the old days, it was pretty much across the board. You try to give as much of the, the cafeteria retail food similar to what you would feed the patient so that you didn't duplicate the efforts and, and cause extra labor components right. to it. Right. We still try to dub, dovetail and, and do as much of, off of that menu as you can. But then there is also, again, getting back to the fact that you have a, a wide variety of selections because you want to make sure that that staff is is satisfied and that's where you had the different stations and we had the the chef station you know the the action stations out in the retail but we did try to serve a lot of the regular food for instance the chef special was generally the chef special out in the retail area yeah and i will say for our patient services if a patient is on a regular diet has no modifications that are necessary then they are allowed to select from the cafeteria menu also which gives them a lot more options to choose from in their diet also. But 
they are completely separate menus as far as a patient service in the retail menu, but they do intertwine very nicely. Right. So. right. Well, I think we wanted to end today with a fun question for both of you. So what I would love to do, because I love nutrition and, and, and food in general, <laughs> I want to know from you, the two of you who are both RDs and have so much experience in the field, where do you go to get your nutrition knowledge? And I'm talking personally, so not maybe not necessarily in your your job. Like obviously in your job, you, you have government regulations and and things you have to look at. But for you yourself, you're trying to keep up with the industry. You're trying to feed your family. Where do you look to get your info and your recipes? Um, you know, I think right now the world has opened up to a wealth of information on the internet and. I listen to several different blogs. I, I really like a lot of different physicians who have written books about nutrition. Dr. Ornish is one right now that I'm reading a few of his books. I think it's fascinating to me to really, I enjoy reading success stories of people who have used nutrition to overcome disease states in their body, you know, in mm -hmm. their bodies, make transitions and become more healthier and who want to spread that information to other people. So I enjoy reading those types of books. One of my favorite bloggers is, um, is, oh, I just forgot his name. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it just slipped my mind. It'll come it'll back. It'll come to you. It'll come, yeah, it'll it'll come, come back. back to me. But anyway, um, so I enjoy listening and reading to, to people who use nutrition to better their lives and their lifestyle. And or Ornish, is that what you said? Dr. Ornish. He's Ornish. read some okay. really... He's overcome almost near death from heart wow. disease and has totally transformed himself and does a lot of programs where he brings people in to hospital settings and uses his program to overcome heart disease. Very really fascinating cool. program. Yeah. yeah I, I agree with Liz. I think everybody taps into the Internet. So it's just amazing <laughs> what's out there. And uh, I just recently actually purchased a uh, a, a three-month program, a keto program. It was, it's awesome. It's, it gives you different menus for each meal each day for three months. And it is also accumulates the, uh, or provides all of the recipes for it. So it's really, it, you know, you get all kinds of great ideas and it was, you know, inexpensive. And I, I started reading through it and I said, wow, this is fascinating because it's Really, you know, sometimes what happens is I find myself, I end up finding items that I like to cook myself and then I end up doing them all the time. And right. it, it, sometimes mm -hmm. you don't branch away from that. And all of a sudden I'm looking and reading these things about using mint and, and different, you know, you know uh, mint, mint cocoa, mo a mocha uh, fra um, frappe. It was like delicious. I'm like, wow, I would never would have created this thing. It had like six ingredients is all, but it was simple. And, um, right. but I never would have used it if I hadn't tapped into that. And then I also lean a little bit on my, my daughter's experience. She's, um, young 25, but she works with Campbell soups, uh, the Petridge farm division, and they have all kinds of recipes and that's the, the grocery stores. I just love it. You know, the, the higher end grocery stores, you go into their, any of their meat sections or fish sections, they always have the recipes for the items and they've got new ways that they they're serving these you know and they're sampling some of the foods i, I think those are uh, great sources for that kind of, of opportunity and that's what i oh use. yeah the hebs here they have their cooking station and unbelievable week, there's they yeah. have the chef there that's doing all those different recipes they have all the ingredients right there oh, they, yeah. it's so easy 
Yeah. I mean, it, and it's neat because you know what? You get into, you get lulled into what you normally do, and then it helps you come out of your, your comfort zone and try something different. So it's good stuff. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite grocery store, Keith? I, I use, uh, in, in, where I am here, Publix is so convenient. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do a lot of that too, but I love HEB and I love, uh, Wegmans up in the Northeast. Oh my gosh, mm-hmm. they do a great job. And then Whole Foods, but it's a little ways for us to go to Whole Foods. And, it's like uh, a special trip. Yeah. And it's also, <laughs> you know, whole paycheck, but uh, it's all yeah. good <laughs> <laughs> Three items later, it's a hundred dollars. It's like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. You just, you just don't want to buy the, the, uh, the non-specialty stuff, but they, they've also got a great deal. I, they run specials. If you go in there and just do the specials, mm-hmm. it's great stuff. Yeah. True. Do you guys ever go to, like, do you have local farmers in your area that you ever yeah. get, like, fresh meat from or anything like that? There is a place that's called Detweiler's where I live, and they've mm-hmm. got a lot of the, the farm to, to their shop, um, and it's pretty cool stuff. A lot of fresh seafood, which is awesome where we oh, live. that's awesome. And um, and then there's a fish market that they get most of our fresh seafood. comes right out of the, you know, the Gulf. It's just, mm-hmm. it's too good. It's too good. That's awesome. What about you, Liz? Because you're, Liz, you're in, like, cattle country, too. Yeah, yeah, we are. But my my favorite store is actually Costco. I'm because yeah. I I have five kids, so I have to feed a I have to feed a big family. So, but Costco's always been my favorite, and my favorite time of year is when they come out with their cookbook because it because it utilizes the products I can get available from them and know how to use them and better. Um, and they've got great recipes in their cookbooks. So these stores do do a great job with giving us resources to use the products that they give available. And I know that in Texas here, HEB is a great store. And what I love most about them is their fresh produce. It comes in Mm -hmm. fresh, straight from, usually a lot of them are from local farmers and they even Mm -hmm. highlight in the store, this is from a local farmer and you can go in there and get great produce. And some of these big warehouses, you buy their produce, it goes bad in a week, things will last weeks there. And that's how you know it's fresh. Yeah. And that's how you know it's fresh is when it lasts a long time in your fridge and when you're utilizing it. So I love going to the local markets that serve or cater to the local farmers. Me too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I could talk about this for seven more hours because I love this <laughs> stuff. <laughs> but thank you guys so much for joining us today. We really yes, appreciate thank it. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Appreciate thank it. You. So, Amy, you know that I'm a nutrition nut and I love this stuff. I think my favorite part, I mean, obviously I love listening to how malnutrition impacts healthcare setting that I think that's something that a lot of people are going to find really interesting and new, Yeah, you know, but the part that I loved, I'll admit at the end was talking about their favorite food bloggers and food resources. (laughs) I know. No kidding. When Keith started talking about keto, I was like, what? <laughs> he's, I know. He's been around a long time. I've known Keith a long time and I've never heard him talk about <laughs> the keto diet before. I just thought that was funny. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why I love talking to RDs because they're so yeah. in the know with what's going on in the industry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, thanks you all so much for joining us for this conversation about malnutrition and the importance of nutrition on patient outcomes. Yes, and thanks Liz and Keith again for joining us today. We so appreciate you taking the time and for for your insight. And thank you all for listening. We hope you've learned some insight today as well. Be sure to follow us and tune in for our next episode with another healthcare leader wherever you listen to your podcasts. And for more tips in healthcare, follow the HHS blog at www.hhs1.com. Until next time.